Now look at me just a minute. There is no perfect family. There's no perfect family because there's no perfect people. We're all just sinners. We're fallen people living in a fallen world around other fallen people. There's no perfect family. But there is a perfect God. And when you follow God's way, God makes your family and your life so much better than anything this world has to offer. I'm standing here tonight, number one, because of the mercy of God. And number two, because of a dad and a mom who loved Jesus, invested in my life. I said to your pastor earlier today, my parents had a, not just a Christian home, they had a happy Christian home. I mean, we actually grew up thinking, I know this is insane, but we actually grew up thinking it was fun to serve the Lord. We were brainwashed, that's what we were, but it was a good brainwashing because we actually grew up thinking that church was wonderful and God's people were the best and it was just great being together. And you may say, well, that's, that's craziness, that, that can't happen. But I want you to know that it forever altered the course of my life. See, the most important thing your family gives you is not rules. Let that sink in just a moment. I'm all for rules. You got to have them. The greatest thing your family gives you, if they give you something, is not money. When my grandpa died, he died with three pennies in his pocket. That's all he had. They're taped in our family Bible at home. Three pennies. That's what he, that's what he left. But that's not what he left. No, no. My granddaddy left behind a testimony of faith in God and a heritage of a man who feared the Lord. And I want to say to you that if you've received that, you ought to be grateful for it. And if you haven't, and you're sitting here tonight thinking, well, I don't have that kind of family. I don't have that kind of testimony. Then by the grace of Almighty God, you all determine tonight, you're going to begin that for your children and for the next generation. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have family in the room tonight? Would you raise your hand? Big and high, big and high. Let me see you got family in the room, and I see lots of parents and grandparents here. Now, brace yourself, because when I finish preaching tonight, we're going to have an old-fashioned prayer meeting that's a little different, and I'm going to ask you to get with your family that's in the room and pray with them. Let me ask this. How many of you would say, my family doesn't happen to be in this room tonight? Would you wave at me just a second? My family's not here, so I'm raising my hand. You say, my family's not in the room. Now, we'll tell you something. If your family's not in the room tonight, but you're a believer, your family is in the room tonight because you're a member of the greatest family on earth, which is the family of Almighty God. Let me tell you something. There's not a daddy in this room that's perfect, but our Heavenly Father is perfect, and he's planning a big family reunion at the Father's house sometime soon, and I hope you're in the family of God. There's nothing like being in the family of God. That was God's idea. The Bible says God set of the solitary in families. So when we have our prayer time a little later, if your family happens not to be in the room, we're going to get you with another member of the family of God so the two of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, can talk to the Heavenly Father together. See, here's what I believe. I believe if we ever have real revival, it's going to be because of the emphasis that is being placed tonight. I love your pastor, and I love these men who've worked so hard, and a whole team of people working so hard. Look, look at me just a second. It's pretty amazing to me. I'm in lots of youth conferences, but it's pretty amazing to me that a church will go to all of this work and effort, not for everybody else, but just for their own teenagers. You know what that says to me? That says you've got somebody here that loves you, praying for you, and pulling for you. You've got families rooting for you. It's wonderful. 
Well, I want you to know something. There's a God in heaven who wants more for you, for your life, and for your family than anything you ever imagined. And several weeks ago when Brother Abdel called and he said, now here's the theme and here's the emphasis. This does not always happen to me. In fact, it rarely happens this way. While I was on the phone, I could take you to where I was sitting. While I was on the phone with him, the Holy Spirit said to me, this is the passage of Scripture you're to preach on. If I had my calendar here with me, I could show you. I took out my pen, and on today's date, I wrote the Scripture I'm about to take you to. And I want you to know, I know in my heart tonight that this is the portion of the Word of God that God has for us. And I'm just praying right now, God will speak to everybody in this room. If you're breathing, I'm talking to you. I'm not just preaching to the people here on the lower level, the young people. I'm preaching to everybody here. See, truth is for every generation, and every one of us must apply it to our own life. With that in mind, I want you to open your Bible to the Psalms, if you will, and I want you to find Psalm 144. What a psalm it is. It's a psalm of David, which is significant, as you'll see in just a moment. It is a psalm of a nation in great need. Oh, our nation is in such need tonight. You say, what does our nation need? Our nation needs the same thing Israel needed. Our nation needs God. We're in desperate need of a spiritual awakening. Will it ever come? Will it, will it happen in our day? I am convicted that the secret to reaching a nation is to reach a generation. The reason our country is in such crisis tonight is because of the collapse of the family. And if we ever see a mighty stirring of the Lord again, it will be because some families get thoroughly right with God. Some grandmas and granddaddies get serious and fervent in their prayers. Some mamas and daddies get wholehearted about what God has given us to do. And some sons and daughters say, by the grace of Almighty God, I don't want to waste my only opportunity. I want everything God has for me. We're going to look at the whole psalm, but let's break right in the middle of it. Look at verse number 7. David prays, send thine hand from above. Rid me. And deliver me out of great waters from the hand of, say the next two words with me, church, ready? Strange children. <laughs> How many of you think some of those are near you tonight? Would you raise your hand, please? Yeah. Strange children. He describes them in verse 8, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and the right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings, while I sing praises unto thee. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of, what please? Strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And then in verse number 12, he shifts his attention away from the strange children. It gets deeply personal now. Look at me before we read it. Look at me, please. You can't straighten everybody else out, but you're responsible for your children. Hey, you can't choose for all your friends, but you're responsible to choose for yourself. You can't straighten America out, but you can get your own life in line with what God wants. And so David gets deeply personal now. It's about to get real. Look at verse number 12, that our sons 
may be as plants grown up in their youth. That our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. That our gardeners may be full, affording all manner of store. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets. That our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out. That there be no complaining in our streets. Wouldn't that be a glorious world to live in? We've seen a whole lot of complaining in our streets in recent weeks, haven't we? And then you come to the great climax. Look at verse 15. Happy is that people. (laughs) That is in such a case. Yay! Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. You don't know this, but early this morning, I had the privilege, the pastor invited me to speak to the staff very early, and I started today with a certain theme, and that was the joy of the Lord and the kind of happy servants of Christ that the God intends and desires, and we've come full circle back now to that at the, at the end of this wonderful day of conference, to this powerful verse in verse number 15, happy is that people that is in such a case, hey, happy is that people whose God is the Lord, and I've marked the two happies in verse 15 in my Bible, it's not just one happy, it's happy, happy, double joy, it's the joy the world can't give you, and praise God, the world can't take it away. It's the same principle when Jesus said in the New Testament, blessed are ye, blessed are ye. The word that he used for blessed literally was a double word. It was like him saying, blessed, blessed. Happy, happy, joyful, joyful. In other words, oh, I love this. God doesn't just give you enough to get by. He gives you abundant joy when you follow his plan. But here's the problem. Everybody I know wants to jump straight to verse 15 and live in verse 15 without applying the first 14 verses. Excuse me, you don't get the product without the process. You don't get the happiness without the help. You don't get to claim the promise of verse 15 without applying the principles of the first 14 verses. Everybody wants a nice life and a happy family. and Everybody wants their kids to turn out right. But I tell you on the authority of the word of God tonight, the only way that happens is if we do it God's way. And so we come back to this little thought. Would you mark in verse number 7 the strange children? And in verse number 11, would you mark again, strange children. And then would you come down to verse 12 and mark our sons and our daughters. And notice the great contrast here between the strange children and our sons and our daughters. What does this mean? The word strange is a fascinating word. It it doesn't mean they look funny. They may look funny, but that's not what it means in the Bible. The word strange in the Bible means this. Are you listening? Different from the way it's supposed to be. That's why in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says, stay away from the strange woman. That doesn't mean the strange woman looks strange. As a matter of fact, she may be very attractive. Strange means that woman doesn't belong to me. I have a wife. Her name is Tammy. She she belongs to me and I belong to her. But every other woman on earth is a strange woman to me because different than the way God chose for me. The Bible warns us about strange flesh. It is that appeal to have what we cannot have or what we've never had. It is different from the way God intended. When the Bible talks about strange children, it doesn't mean they look weird. It simply means they're growing up different than God intended. Sounds a lot like the world we're living in, doesn't it? Our oldest daughter, Morgan, is 20, almost 21 years of age now. But when she was about, I don't know, four, maybe five years of age, we were walking through a mall one day, I'll never forget it hand in hand, swinging arms together. And, Pastor, I saw this fella coming at us. (laughs) 
You saw him a long ways off. He was dressed in all black clothing. He had gothic paint all over him and piercings all over his body and hair spiked about 14 different directions and at least that many different colors. And honestly, he looked a little different. There's no doubt about it. Now, you kids don't understand this, but when you have children someday, you will understand it. And every parent in this room is feeling my pain at this moment because I'm thinking now this moment as we're walking towards the fellow and he's getting near to us, I'm literally praying, dear Lord, please don't let her say anything out loud where he can hear it. And we got almost exactly where he was. And she looked at him and looked at me and she said, Daddy, what is wrong with that guy? And I grabbed her and ushered her along as quickly as I could past him. And when we got out of earshot, I opened my mouth and I started to say something smart aleck. I started to make fun. Whew. And the Holy Spirit wore me out and said to me, uh-uh. Don't you say what you're about to say to mock him. What's wrong with him is he's growing up different than the way God intended. What's wrong with him is he doesn't know Jesus. What's wrong with him is something is, has been missed. Some truth has been missed being placed into his life. God says there's a whole generation of young people that are growing up as strange children, but that's not God's way for your life. See, God's sons and God's daughters, they're, they're supposed to grow up different than that. So what does normal look like anyhow? We've heard a lot in recent days about the new normal, whatever that means, the new normal, the new normal with masks and the new normal with social distancing and the new normal with lots of things. Oh, the new normal. Can I tell you something about God's normal? God's normal never changes. See, the reason God's normal never changes spiritually is because God never changes. He is the eternal God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means, watch, if truth endureth to every generation, then what every generation needs is the truth. So what does normal look like? Don't look at me right now. Everybody turn and look at somebody next to you, would you? Everybody, all you, all you adults do the same. Stare at the person next to you. Just gaze into their lovely eyes for a moment. Some of you sat next to the wrong person. I'm very sorry about that. How many of you think the person next to you looks fairly normal? Would you raise your hand, please? Big and high. You husbands better raise your hand. You're in trouble. Look at me just a second. We look at one another, and we see one another from man's perspective, from an earthly perspective, and we say, he looks pretty normal, she looks pretty normal. Hey, what if we could see people from God's vantage point? What if tonight we could sit with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and get a view from the throne room? What, what does your life look like at this moment? What is, what is God's normal? It was, it was the old North Carolina evangelist Vance Havner that said that we'd become so abnormal that if we ever became normal, we would appear to be subnormal. He's exactly right. In other words, when people's lives actually start lining up with the word of God, people say, that's a little strange. Do you know why that is? Because what's strange to God is normal to the world, and what's normal to God is strange to this world. And you hear me, please, you're going to have to choose which standards you're going to measure by if you're going to be like the strange children of this world or if you're going to be like one of the Lord's sons and the Lord's daughters. So let's look at our psalm, shall we? What is God's normal? 
Well, back up to verse number one. Let's just start where David begins. Verse one, blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. I don't know about you, this, this sounds like there's a war going on. I want you to write down a first truth somewhere in the margin of your Bible tonight and don't miss this. Number one, if you're going to have God's normal, I want to tell you there's going to be a struggle. See, everything God ordains, Satan opposes. And every time God is working, the enemy is fighting. So don't you think you're going to have the right kind of family and have the right kind of life and the devil's going to like that. He's going to do everything he can to try to stop it. There's a spiritual warfare going on at this moment in this room. There's a spiritual tug of war going on in some of your hearts. Some of you have been badly since the conference started and some have been fighting long before that. And you know the Lord's working on you, but the devil's pulling the other direction and your flesh is caught in the middle. You know what that is? It's a spiritual battle. The great battle in this world is not military, it's not economic, it's not even political. The great battle in this world is not philosophical. The great battle in this world is not that you can't get along with your family members. The great battle in this world is we're engaged in a spiritual warfare. Look at all the fight terms. In verse 1, war, fight. Verse 2, fortress, shield, subdueth. This is a warrior psalm. Remember who wrote it? David, the warrior king. David who began as a warrior in the valley of Elah and David that fought battles all of his life. Hear me please. As long as you're living on this earth, you're engaged in a spiritual battle. Let me tell you where the front lines are. The front lines are your family. You think the front lines are in this building? No. I'm sorry. The front lines are in your house. See, nobody's a better Christian than the Christian they are in the privacy of their own home. We get all cleaned up for church, and, and we do a pretty good job of putting on a fairly good show at church. But I want to tell you something where the real battle is for every one of us, including the man speaking to you tonight, is in the privacy of our own home. That's where the war is being fought, and that's where it's being won, or that's where it's being lost. Did, did you know Did you know that verse 1, Psalm 144, verse 1, was actually inscribed on the swords of 12th century knights? That's fascinating to me. In the 12th century, when the knights went out to battle, they inscribed this verse. Look at the verse. Blessed is the Lord, my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. I don't know if they understood it all, but I want you to know you're in a spiritual warfare tonight, and if you're going to have God's way, God's normal, number one, it's going to be a struggle. By the way, let me give you a little hope. Look at the end of verse number two. It says, God subdueth. Can I tell you, Jesus Christ has already conquered and he makes us more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it doesn't mean that you become some strong person in your own might. We'll see that in just a moment to get it done and make it happen. It means that the Lord wins the victory in you. Only God can subdue your devil. Only God can subdue your lust. Only God can subdue your pride. I was reading this week, the last chapter of Micah. Not for you, but just devotionally. And I came to that beautiful verse that says, The Lord subdueth our iniquities. Some of you tonight are in such a battle with some besetting sin, some stronghold in your life, something that you've tried a thousand times to stop and get rid of, and you don't have victory over it yet. And the devil is a liar and the father of it, and he's whispering in your ear that you'll never be victorious. I tell you tonight, Jesus Christ can subdue every enemy. 
There's a second truth. Look again, beginning in verse 3. I love this, Lord. We're on holy ground. We're at the throne. Look at it, Lord. What is man? Thou takest knowledge of him. Or the son of man that thou makest to count of him. Man's like to vanity. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. Bow thy heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out thine arrows and destroy them. Would you write down a second truth, please? If you want God's normal, not only will there be a struggle, but secondly, you're going to need strength. Strength you do not have on your own. You see, spiritual warfare requires spiritual weapons. So look at it, look at it. In verse 1, he says, the Lord's my strength. And in verse 4, he said, man is vanity. Listen to me. There is a strength that you need that you don't have, and the pastor can't give it to you, and your youth director can't give it to you, and your mom and daddy can't give it to you, but God can and will if you'll trust him. I'm speaking as a father tonight of a... 20-year-old and an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old. Would you all pray for me, please? There's a strength that I desperately need that you can't find in books and you can't muster it up, but I am glad to report to you tonight that God Almighty is more than enough. He is El Elyon, the strongest, strong one, and there is nothing that we need that is not found in our all-sufficient God. Yes, there's a struggle, but there's a strength. Praise his name. His name is Jesus. I like what Martin Luther said. He said, always remember that even the devil is God's devil. I like that. What do you mean by that? He meant by that, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And look, please, you may be in the fight of your life, but the captain of our salvation has everything that you need. This family psalm is a fight song. I want you to know that's normal. It's normal to be in a struggle. It's normal to need strength. Here's a third truth. Would you write it down? The world's way will always be strange. We've come back to the verses where we began in verse 7 down through verse number 11. The world's way, the world's children, they're, they're strange. And notice two things that mark them. Would you mark this in your Bible? He repeats it. In verse 8, it's their mouth and their hand. Do you see it? Circle it in verse 8. Their mouth and their hand. Then come to verse 11. Their mouth and their hand. Their mouth and their hand. Why, why use this, this symbolism, the mouth and the hand? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speak it. You can tell a lot about people by what comes out of their mouth. One mark of strange children is what comes out of their mouth. They don't speak like children of God. They, they don't speak like people of faith. Do you? The other thing that marks the life of a, a young person growing up different than they ought to is not only what they say, but it's what they do. That's, that's their hand. Now listen to me. We're talking about guarding your heart and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. But here's the reality. I can't see your heart. These men can't see your heart. Only God can see your heart. But I'll tell you this, whatever's on the inside is going to come out, and the heart gets evidence through your mouth and through your hands. And I wonder right now, from God's vantage point, are you normal? I didn't say to your friends think you're normal. I didn't say does your classmates think you're normal or your part-time job people or your, or your teammates. I'm asking, would God look at you and say, that's one of my children? Would God look at you and say, that's how I want my sons to be? That's how I want my daughters to live? Would God look at you and say, that's the way I always intended? So it brings me to the fourth truth, and this is really the great point of the whole message. 
Yes, there's a struggle, and yes, we need strength, and yes, the world's way is strange, but number four, only God's way is straight. Only God's way is right. Sin is iniquity. It's crookedness, and in a crooked world, only God's way is plain and right down the line. Mom and Dad, I'm going to tell you what we need. We don't need a new idea. We need a fresh commitment to truth. I'm going to tell you what I need as a dad at this juncture in my life. Trying to raise our children and praying, oh God, I just want them to love Christ. Somebody say, what are your kids going to do? I have no idea. And I'm not going to say what they're going to do because I have no idea what they're going to do. They're going to make decisions. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm more concerned about what they're going to be than what they're going to do. I'd like them to be true followers of Christ. I'd like them to be in love with Jesus. I'd like them to be young people of prayer. Because if they'll be what they ought to be, they'll do what they ought to do. I have no idea what kind of money they'll make and really don't give a rip. I'll tell you what I care about. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ someday and gather around the nail-pierced feet of Jesus, I'd like those kids to know that their life has counted for Jesus Christ. And I'm praying as a parent, oh God, give me wisdom. Oh God, give every parent in this building wisdom. We need what only God can give us. And by the way, you young people, listen to me. Your parents aren't perfect, but your God is. And this church is not perfect, but your God is. And I wonder tonight, will you choose God's way? You going to be like everybody else? Go ahead. Get in the stream, be like everybody else. Everybody wants to be an individual, then everybody wants to spend all their time acting like everybody else. Nonsense. Why don't you stand tonight by the grace of Almighty God and say, I want to be known as one of the Lord's sons and the Lord's daughters. I want God's normal in my life. So I ask you again, what does normal look like? Well, quickly, let me show you the closing verses. Mark it in verse 12. Number one, God's normal gives you maturity. Look at verse 12. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. Mark that phrase, grown up in their youth. That's strange, isn't it? Last time I checked, you're not grown up in your youth. You're growing up in your youth. So how how can our sons be as plants, rooted, grounded, growing, fruitful, grown up in their youth? Best I can tell, the only way that's possible is he's referring to spiritual realities. I want every young man in this room to look at me right now. Your goal should not be to be a man. Your goal should be to be God's man. I've seen one too many young men grow up and not be real men. And by the way, there's a difference between age and stage, and just because you get older doesn't mean you're mature. In fact, I know a lot of 50-year-old babies. Don't you be one of them. God's normal brings a maturity, his strength put in you. It's it's strength you don't get from bodybuilding and you don't get it from the world and you don't get it from power, you get it from God. See, David, David wrote this, David had it when he was 17 years old. That's right. When he walked out in the valley of Elah with a handful of smooth stones and a slingshot, somebody would look to him and said, what a little runt, what a little, what a little kid, what a, what a child, what a son, what a, what a young man. But when God looked at him, he was a man grown up in his youth. 
You need spiritual maturity that only God can give you. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 12. That our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. Oh, I like this. God's normal not only gives you maturity, it gives you beauty. See, there's a strength and a beauty that comes from God alone. And he uses this, this symbolism. Look at it, girls. All you girls, look at it. Cornerstones. Cornerstones are strong thing. Don't you let anybody tell you that if you, if you follow God's way, you're weak. I want you to know that the greatest strength is connected to being the lady God saved you to become. Cornerstones were put in that day where two walls met and they were high up. They were at the top of the wall and they were very ornate looking. Do you know why? Because they reflected the beauty of the one who lived on the inside. Hey, girls, there's a difference between attraction and beauty. You can be attractive to people, and it can be sensual and sexual and fleshly, but I want you to know that fades with time and experience, but if you get the beauty of God on your life, that will never fade. That will increase for the rest of your life. Because it's the beauty of Jesus. It's the beauty of Christ living here. By the way, did you know in the New Testament, Christ is called the chief cornerstone? So lest you girls think that the will of God and the work of God is just for a bunch of boneheaded boys, I came to tell you tonight, you can be like cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. And hallelujah, let everybody know the king lives on the inside of that palace. The word polished here literally means cut. See, plants have to be pruned and cornerstones have to be cut. And I wonder right now, fellows, what, what's God trying to prune out of your life, cut out of your life? Hey, girls, what's the Holy Spirit been putting his finger on the last few days and saying, you know that's got to go if you're going to be what I want you to be? God's normal brings maturity. God's normal brings beauty. That's not all. Look at verse 13. That our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Watch this, please. God's normal brings prosperity. Somebody says, uh-oh, uh-oh. Now he's talking about that prosperity stuff. I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about something better than stuff. It's called the blessing of God. The Bible says the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Your money will be gone someday, your clothes and cars and houses and everything you live for. But I want you to know if you can find the riches that are in Jesus Christ and have the blessing of God on your life and family, friend, you've found the most glorious thing on planet earth. It lasts for time and for eternity. The pastor said that my dad was a businessman and he was. As a little boy growing up, my dad had a corporate job and they made good money. And we took great trips. Their company had a little private jet, and he, he even got some hours on it. And I remember we used to take little trips when I was a, a boy, and I thought, man, this is the biggest thing. My dad was in his 30s. God called him to preach. I remember the day that my dad left the job that he had had for all of those years and took a little church. About six weeks ago, he just celebrated his 30th anniversary of pastoring that same church. Now, we don't have a private jet anymore to ride around on. 
Those trips are a little different and, and, and things are not quite the same materially, but let me tell you what I've discovered. I've discovered there is joy in following Jesus Christ that God's way is always the right way. Look at the end of it. In verse 14, no complaining. There's a contentment. And in verse 15, we've come full circle back to this happy, happy life. God's normal makes you happy. True happiness is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me show you something. Back up to verse number four. Here is the, the world's way. Here's where the strange children end up. Verse four, man is like to what? Where it means emptiness. Let me tell you something about the Lord's children. The Lord's children never end empty. Sin always leads you to a dead end. God always takes you to an open door. Sin always gets worse. The Lord's way, the path of the just, is as a shining light that shineth more and more to the perfect day. The devil gives you his best up front, but the Lord's always saves the best for last. And I came to tell you tonight and testify there's joy in following Jesus Christ. Now I'm a long ways from being what I ought to be, but I've experienced enough of the goodness and grace of God in my life to know that what I want for the rest of my life and what I want for my children and what I want for you and what these people want for you is God's way to be normal. One scripture and I'm done. You still in Psalms? If you're in Psalms, say amen. Go back a few pages to Psalm 127. We'll end here. Psalm 144 was a psalm of David. When you get to Psalm 127, notice the little title for Psalm 127. A song of degrees for who, please? There were some lessons that David learned and that Solomon didn't. That's why David ended full and Solomon ended empty. You pick. Look at the psalm. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Dear Lord, we need you. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Look, please, church. Our sons... Our daughters, the heritage of the Lord. Verse 4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Remember I said these psalms are fight psalms, this, this warfare in the home. Do you see it, please? God didn't give you children and grandchildren to simply enjoy. God gave you children and grandchildren to prepare. To prepare them for what? To go to college? To get a job, to make some money? No. You're preparing them for the battle. For the same struggle, for the same enemy. You're preparing them to fight the Lord's battle in another generation. If that happens, it won't happen on accident. It'll have to be on purpose. Unless you think it's miserable, notice how this psalm ends. See if the first word seems vaguely familiar. What's the first word of verse 5, church? Seems like you're always ending happy with the Lord, doesn't it? 
Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Watch this. But they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. You know what we're doing in the conference this week? We're trying, to get, we're trying to get all these arrows out here ready to speak with the enemies in the gate. But that doesn't just happen at the church house. That has to happen at our house. The pastor and I have been talking a lot this week about revival. I'm burdened, deeply burdened for revival. Our country needs desperately a spiritual awakening. So everybody thinks that you bring an evangelist to town, he preaches a few sermons and the revival comes. Let me use a deep theological West Virginia term for that, hogwash. It's nonsense. As a matter of fact, I've come to believe that if real revival comes, it probably won't come through preaching. It probably will come through praying. I like preaching. Don't get me wrong. I like to do it, and I like to listen to it. But you study the great history of revivals, and you'll find they're always rooted in prayer. Moody said that every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Maybe the most important thing we do here tonight is not me talk to you. Maybe the most important thing we all do in just a moment is we all talk to God. Thomas Boston took a little pastorate in a village. He just knew God was going to do something big in that church, and he started preaching. He preached his heart out. He preached everything he knew as hard as he knew for six months, and nobody got saved. Nobody. Nobody got baptized. Nobody got added to the church. <laughs> nobody got right with God. That's encouraging, isn't it? He said, I tried everything I knew. He said, I got down on my knees alone. I wept before the Lord and I said, God, something's wrong. Is, is it wrong with me? By the way, that's a good place to always start. Don't, don't pick on everybody else first. Check yourself. Once Thomas Boston knew he was right with God, he said, Lord, what is it? Something's holding back the blessing. What is it? Thomas Boston said the Lord led him to do something he'd never done in his ministry before. He set appointments in every home in his church with every family. May have been large or small, may have been part of the family still intact. It may have been an entire family, it didn't matter. He got an appointment with every family and he insisted that every member of the family that was still together be there. He got them all around the dining room table or in the living room of their home and he asked if they had a Bible and they, most of them would bring an old family Bible out. They would bring the Bible out and they would hand it to him and Thomas Boston said, I would sit there with that small family unit and he said, I would say, well, let's begin this way. Tell me how you got saved. And he said he went around the circle and he asked every person, looked him in the face, how'd you get saved? How'd you get saved? How'd you get saved? And the first thing Boston said was he discovered that many of the people sitting in his church pews weren't even believers. Oh, they professed to know God, but they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They were lost. You can't get saved people to be spiritual, unsaved people to be spiritual people. Thomas Boston said, I opened the Bible and led many of them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I started by making sure they were saved. He said, then I got down where they lived. He said, I opened the Bible and I read a portion of the Bible. And when I finished reading a portion of the Bible, I closed the Bible and I bowed my head and I began to pray. And he said, I prayed for every family member by name. I prayed all the way around the room and prayed by name. God would work in every one of them. And he said, when I said amen, I closed the Bible. 
handed it to the head of the household. If father was there, it went to dad. If, if it was just mother in the home, it went to mother. If it was grandparents raising the kids, it went to the grandparents. But handed the Bible to whoever was the head of the household, and he said, what I've just done with your family, you should be doing every day. Thomas Boston said, before he left each family, he established with them what he called a family altar. The family, reading the Bible, praying together, talking about spiritual things. You know that within three months, they had an old-fashioned revival in that community? God showed up. They said the bars closed and the prisons were empty and the church house was packed to capacity and people were saved by the droves. And Thomas Boston said the interesting thing was it didn't start at the church altar, it started at the family altar. Richard Baxter had almost the exact same thing happen in his community. You know what we're waiting on? We're waiting on some preacher to blow through and preach some dynamic sermon and we all hit this altar and get right with God and think that's a, a lightning bolt switch that changes everything. I tell you, until it changes our homes, we are not the people God saved us to become. This is what God's normal looks like. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me all over this building. And if you're watching online, I'm going to ask you right now to bow your head and close your eyes, wherever you may be. You may be in a church building or a living room or a kitchen, wherever you are. Would you just bow with me in prayer for a moment? Let's do exactly, let's do exactly what Thomas Boston and Richard Baxter did. Let's start, let's start here. How many of you know you're saved and there's no doubt about it? Would you raise your hand big and high and keep it up just a minute? And with your hand lifted to heaven, would you thank Jesus for that right now? Because if it wasn't Jesus, you couldn't raise your hand, young man, young lady. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be in hell or on our way there. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. Praise his holy name. He saved my soul. You may lower your hands. I must ask this question. Who among us tonight would say, Preacher, I could not raise my hand with confidence. I'm not 100% sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. But I'm 100% sure I don't want to go to hell. Preacher, I am not sure I'm saved, but I do not want to be lost. Preacher, pray for me. I want you to lift your hand in the air with mine, big and high, right where you are. You say, that's me. God bless you. I see your hands. Yes, I see you. Who else? Raise it up big and high. Anywhere. And some of you that may not be in this building, God sees you. God knows. God knows. If you just raised your hand, I want you to lift your head and look at me wherever you are. Nobody's looking but me and you. Would you look at me? I want to tell you something. God loves you. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead so you could be saved. I'm going to tell you the best news anybody ever told you. God wants to forgive your sin and come live in your life. He wants you to be a member of his family. Wouldn't you like to be able to call God your father with confidence? Here's how. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I wonder tonight, would you be willing to be one of the whosoevers? Happened in my life 38 years ago this year. I bowed my head and I prayed a simple prayer and I invited Jesus Christ into my life. And that day, God kept his word. He always keeps his word. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus tonight as your personal Savior? 
to drive a stake in the ground about your soul's salvation. Wherever you are in this building or in another place, if you need to settle your salvation, I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes with me right now, right where you are. Just bow your head. I can't save you, but Jesus can and he will. Would you be willing to pray a simple prayer of faith tonight right where you are and invite the Lord Jesus into your life? If that's what you want and that's what you need, would you pray something like this right now all over this place, wherever you are? Would you pray this from your heart to God? Dear God, right now, dear God, God is listening. Dear God, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and I believe that he rose from the dead. Forgive my sin. Come into my life. I trust you right now, once and for all, to be my personal Savior. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for giving me eternal life.